We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Heavenly Father, it is clear upon the rereading of this text that there is to be a prescribed and diligent application of all the great truths that we discover in thy word concerning thee. Thou art a great God and worthy to be praised. Thou art a great God, and it is only fitting that our living should reflect your greatness. Thank you for the occasion to return to the text. Help us to quickly find our place in the record of the biblical record, the context of the passage, for the benefit of our souls, and prepare us as your people for every good work in the week ahead. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. We are speaking about heavenly-mindedness and earthly goodness. Hebrews 13, 1-6 builds upon the doctrinal climax of the book of Hebrews as found in chapter 12. The necessity of grace to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, 1228, is burned into the mind of the believer by the laser truth that God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. The doctrinal body of Hebrews thus ends with the pinnacle of emphasis of Christ, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant based upon his own sacrificial blood, chapter 12, verse 24. The reminder that in him exclusively 
a believing person possesses the grace or the gift of God to serve God acceptably. God the Father only accepts the worship that is offered Him in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must worship God in spirit and in truth, or else we worship not God at all. And the only way to worship God is in Jesus Christ. And yet the world promotes this phony baloney idea that there's all kinds of religions and that we're all worshiping God. No, we're not. We might be worshiping something, but we're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Because the only acceptable worship to God, the God of the Bible, is found in relationship to Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we said that without any word of transition, without any word of introduction, Hebrews 13 opens with a series of practical matters in application of the rich doctrinal truths established in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapters 1 to 12 represents the rich doctrinal truth of Christ upon which we set our minds. And Hebrews 13 presents some of the earthly practices in application. Or as we might say it, and we'll emphasize it as we go forward, we are to be heavenly minded. Hebrews chapters 1 to 12, and earthly good, Hebrews chapter 13. Heavenly minded and earthly good is a dynamic combination that is rarely seen today among professing Christians. There are many people, like one of my relatives, that are indeed do-gooders. He just loves to help people. He will plow your snow he will install a new door for you or a new door handle. Uh, he'll drive you to the doctor. He'll take your dog for a walk. Uh, but all of this has little to do with his understanding or commitment to the Lord. In fact, if you fail to fuss over his walking the dog, if you fail to fuss over the door handle that you replaced or he replaced, if you fail to fuss over the fact that he plowed your snow, uh, then he will move on to somebody else who will fuss over him because of all the good that he does. Uh, uh, he is indeed a professing Christian, and he's out there, but I would argue that there's nothing of his service that is acceptable to God with reverence and godly fear. Absolutely zippity-doo-dah. Zip. All kinds of activity. Nothing to do with serving God acceptably. In contrast, Sherry and I have a well-to-do friend that spends hours every day studying the scriptures. She has a larger Puritan library than anything I've ever seen in any preacher's possession. She is highly discerning of societal deceptions, the deceptions of our age. And yet, she withholds herself from any local church fellowship and functions as a spiritual hermit. She has made her house a virtual monastery. 
uh, she is in there. That do-gooding relative of mine is out there. And my rich friend is in there. Neither of those examples illustrate the best of God's acceptable, reverent response among his people. Neither one of those examples, while extreme, illustrate the best. They illustrate the extremities among people. God has called us to be heavenly-minded with the truth of Christ and earthly good. And the more you study and think about it, the more you realize that that is indeed very, very rare. I've made this observation to reset our perspective of Hebrews 13 and the practical matters of earthly good as being emphasized. Last week we began with verses 1 to 6 and began to emphasize the six facets of biblical fellowship which are communicated at the forefront of this chapter. The first emphasis of practical application concerning the rich doctrinal realities of Christ, Hebrews 1 to 12, is in relationship to the believer's fellowship, one to another. The fellowship of believers as detailed in Hebrews 13, 1 to 6. Last week we looked briefly at the three facets of kindness that is to be expressed by the family of God. And I want to quickly return to those facets by way of mention this morning before we move on to three other facets in verses 4 to 6. Quick review. First facet of fellowship responsiveness in light of the great truth of Christ. Verse 1, let Philadelphia abide. Let Philadelphia continue. Brotherly love. The Greek word literally Philadelphia, and you have it combined here with the word to abide. Possessing grace in Christ means the continuation of family love expressed within a local assembly as in this one. God has called us, God has demanded of us, brotherly love, one for another. And that is to continue within the context of the local sphere. The second thought, verse 2, is philonexia. In addition to the brotherly love, there is to be among the family of God an expression of love for strangers. That's not love for the homeless. That's not love for the vet. That's not love for the neighbor. This is specifically talking about love for believers in times of distress. Philonexia, which means to extend hospitality or to provide necessity of entertainment for those that are displaced, is particularly directed towards believers. Entertaining strangers does not mean we pull together a Baptist variety show with singers and dancers. It means that we are prepared to feed and shelter God's people in times of distress. It also means that we are to open our personal resources up to serve the needs of traveling missionaries and pastors. As promised you last week, I want to return to the thought in verse 2 to quickly address the reference to entertaining angels. Stranger danger is a real thing. And most people are rightly cautious around people unknown. 
But when conditions are serious, it is particularly important that God's people extend loving help and care one to another. Abraham would be an example of that. He would be an example of some who entertained and extended hospitality to strangers when in fact hosting angels and even the pre-incarnate Son of God in the door of his tent, unaware until made aware. The point of verse 2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The point is not that in lovingly treating somebody you don't know as a professing believer, that it might turn out that it's an angel from heaven. The point of verse 2 is not about that possibility, although I wouldn't take that possibility away in its entirety. But the point is, the point is that Abraham was greatly blessed by the messengers passing through that he exercised himself to entertain. So might you and I be blessed by those to whom we extend hospitality in the name of the Lord. Even if the person we extend to turns out to be just a regular needful believer, we know that our Lord said that as we treat the least of his brethren, so we treat our Lord. And so the logic here is, is that by extending yourself to care for other Christians, you do unto them as you would do unto the Lord, and he takes it that way. And secondly, as you do unto others, as you are commanded to do unto others in the Lord, then the potential exists for you to be greatly blessed in some specific way, because of that courtesy, because of that avenue of hospitality extended. And then the third thing we talked about last week from verse 3 has to do with empathetic care. This is the furtherance of loving interest and expression of kindness directed towards those believers that are in prison for their faith and those that are mistreated by the governing powers around them. The words, as bound with them and in the body, call for more than sympathetic kindnesses, but rather empathetic kindnesses directed towards our fellow believers. We put ourselves in the shoes of our brethren as we seek to be of help. Heavenly-minded people are to be kind on earth by loving, entertaining, and remembering, as described here in verses 1 to 3. You might be surprised at just how wonderfully we would sing if, in fact, we were once to again hear the devil's roar. Spurgeon famously said, the church will never sing until the devil roars. The church will never sing 
until the devil roars. Think of that. Until there's conflict, until there's trouble, until there's distress, God's people are seldom serious. But in a day of trouble and in a day of distress, God's people get serious. And they ought to be serious. And you and I ought to be serious when it comes to extending hospitality towards the aspect of others. Uh, there, is, there is probably nothing so goofed up in this world as Christian benevolence. People have the idea that if they throw a 10-spot extra in the monthly offering for benevolence that they've done due diligence to care for people. And most of the time, we don't even have a close of church where that money should go. The fund builds and builds. And then when something is, is obvious, there has to be a, a long discussion about what we should do with it. Here's a novel idea. If you've got an extra $10, you know a believer that needs it, give it to them. Forget the tax deduction. Forget the, forget the fact that we won't put the right number on the dollar bill that you give. Uh, so that it can be accorded for Uncle Sam, and just give it to the believer and let God take care of the accounting. You'd be surprised what God might do. We've turned all Christendom into a system. Oh, God help us to be rightly, Christly kind one to another as the truth of Christ demands. Second area of emphasis has to do with purity. Purity as it relates in honoring. Purity as it relates to conducting. Purity as it relates to depending. Honoring, conducting, and depending. Earthly good that glorifies God and expresses kindness to others is void unless it is matched by a personal sense of spiritual health and purity. Keeping ourselves pure is essential. And purity for the believer involves sex, verse 4, satisfaction, verse 5, and sustenance, verse 6. Purity involves sex, satisfaction, and sustenance, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. The call of verse 4 extended to each and every believer is to honor God's plan for sexual activity exclusively within the relationship of marriage. No sexual activity before, outside, or in addition to marriage is specifically addressed. God's people evidence their heavenly-mindedness by sexual purity. Sexual perversion is one of the defining issues of our day, and we must certainly stand against the perversions of our day. But in God's view, the violations of marriage by premarital and extramarital sex is likewise condemned. We must teach and live pure. We must live the way that God has told us to live. We must live within the sphere of God's commandments. Furthermore, believers are to live contented lives. 
It is not just about acceptance of status quo or surrender of ambition, but is indeed submission to Christ and his purposes. Not only is marriageable, marriage honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but literally we are to let our conversation, verse 5, be without covetousness. That's an interesting word. Let your lifestyle be without the love of money. The word covetousness here translates from a word that just plainly, most literally, would be translated the love of money. Let your lifestyle be without the love of money. Be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Verse 4 is about the single most important earthly relationship you have outside of relationship with God your relationship with your mate. Verse 5 is about your relationship with God exactly as we preached it in the former hour today from Matthew 6.33. About honoring God and about glorifying God as to his dependability by remembering that God has promised you never to leave you nor never to forsake you. Holy discontent, holy discontent, has to do with a dissatisfaction in where I am at in my spiritual progress and embrace of Christ. But unholy discontent, which in this passage is called covetousness, has to do uh, with the desire for something or someone that God has not seen fit to place in your life. Could be a car, could be a child, could be a gallery, could be a girlfriend, could be a boat, could be a buddy. But you and I are to operate in this life honoring the relationships that God says are to be honored. And you and I are to exercise ourselves to be content, realizing that if you have God, you have it all. And he will never leave you, nor abandon you, nor forsake you. And on that basis, you are to grab a hold, as it were, of that gracious sense of content. Our satisfaction in life is ever to be drawn from the presence and the persistence of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so then building upon that, you have in verse 6, so that we may boldly say, we may boldly say, these practical admonitions are not for worldlings. These practical Admonitions are not for misdirected Christians. These practical admonitions only apply to those that are honoring the doctrinal truth of Hebrews 1 to 12 and the superiority of the new covenant relationship in Jesus Christ by the blood of his cross. And on that basis, we are to honor the institution that God has ordained, namely marriage between a man and a woman.
On that basis, we are to honor the relationship that we have with God, knowing that he will never leave us or never forsake us. And it is on that basis that we can boldly say, say with confidence and courage, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Convinced that God is my helper, I do not live in fear of what man can do to me. That, by the way, is a quote of Psalm 118 and verse 6. This brief reference to the great messianic psalm, Psalm 118, sung repeatedly in the times of Jewish celebration, reminds us that we are wise to trust God in the days of our earthly life. Now, the reference right there in context to Psalm 118 is absolutely and demonstratively instructive. Psalm 118 is part of the great grouping of psalms called the Hillel. And it is particularly sung at holiday time, and it is most particularly sung at Passover. And as Jesus is on and in the upper room celebrating Passover with his disciples, he, according to the New Testament scriptures of record, faithfully sings, as all faithful Jewish men would on Passover night, the Hillel. And in fact, you're familiar with the words, and when they sung a hymn, they went out. And we know the hymn that they sung. It would be the Hillel. And the emphasis of the Hillel uh, includes this idea of living courageously, as verse 6 says it, living courageously, knowing that the Lord is my helper, and on that basis, not exercising any fear in what man shall do unto me. So just think about this now. As the Lord Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, and at a given time in that Passover celebration, Judas gets up from the table of fellowship and departs. And you know why he departed. He departed in order that he might betray the Lord Jesus. And after Judas departs, the Lord, with the remaining 11 disciples, sings the remaining facets of the Hillel, including that particular sung emphasis at Passover, Psalm 118, 6 and 7, which is referenced in Hebrews 13, 6 as 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what Judas shall do unto me. No, man. But you see what I'm doing? I'm putting Christ right in the position of you and me as we live life. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, saying, Psalm 118, 6 and 7, as a part of the Passover experience, reminding himself that his courage as our Lord and Christ came from his Lord and God the Father. And on that basis, he would not cower knowing what Judas was doing to betray him and what the soldiers would do when they came and took him in order that he might be crucified for our sins. Hebrews 13.6 says, You and I need to live on this earth exactly as Jesus Christ did live. Fearing God, not men. Trusting God not men. Trusting men leads to fearing men. Fearing God leads to trusting God. The ultimate sense of stability comes when we fear and trust God. As you and I think about the fellowship of saints, again, Hebrews 13, 1-6 are not generic boy, boy scout or girl scout words to be slapped into a manual and, and widely applied to all human relationships. That said, there are other verses of Scripture that tell us we ought to be kind to everybody. And certainly, if you're not kind, you're the wrong kind because Christ was kind. But this passage is about the kindness and the purity that is to be front and center among the family of God while still on earth. And that kindness among the family of God while still on earth is to be extended in some very particular ways through a perpetual abiding of brotherly love and care, uh, through a sense of, uh, of uh, consideration for believers uh, when they are in times of adversity and distress. And, uh, and when seasons uh, happen upon the element of our experience where that there are believers for the sake of honor to Christ are uh, placed in prison, that we empathize with them in that and not just take it as a, as, a, as a report in which we are to stand back and say, oh my, isn't that terrible? Oh my, isn't that, oh my, isn't that terrible? Oh my, isn't that terrible? No, we're to exercise ourselves uh, uh, as being in prison with them, and when adversity comes to a believer, uh, we are to be uh, suffering alongside of them, uh, being ourselves in the body knowing that it could just as easily be us as them. And so those kindnesses are to flow in the family of God as a result of the high and lofty truth of Jesus Christ. Or to say it otherwise, orthodoxy 
must engage in practicality. Your orthodoxy must engage in practicality. No one will do well as a believer at Judgment Day, the Bema, with only a reputation for orthodoxy. Lord, we believed right. Good for you. But the basis of God's judgment of his family is orthodoxy and practicality of kindness. Orthodoxy and practicality of purity. Purity of relationship as is honorable within the bonds of marriage. Verse 4. Practicality of relationships as is evident as, uh, as constantly attending uh, to the high and lofty truths of God and application to your personal life and experience. Verse 5. Orthodoxy that plays out boldly in practicality with an understanding that the Lord is our helper. We shall not fear what man shall do unto us. The previous adult study in 1 John encouraged us to be knowing that God is light and in him is no darkness at all and that it is our responsibility to walk in the light as he is in the light that we might have fellowship with God. That walk in light as he is in the light involves kindness extended to members of God's family. It involves purity in practice for every believer. This is the beginning of living that rare life of heavenly-mindedness and earthly good. That relative of mine is all about earthly good, but he's bored by the Bible. He doesn't like to sing the hymns when God's people lift them in song at worship, and the best service for him, public service, is the one that is now done. He's earthly good and by no means heavenly-minded. That rich lady who's been a friend to Sherry and I over many years, is heavenly-minded. But I say she's no earthly good. None at all. Are those the extremes? Yes. But many of God's people have a bent to doing good and not being interested in the things of Christ, the truth of Christ as the mediator by the own blood of his cross. And others are all about that, all about the doctrine, all about the truth, all about uh, those things, without any sense of practicality, of application uh, that touches anybody else except their own selves. 
surely you and I can readily see the word of God and the prompting of his spirit that we should all be heavenly minded and earthly good. Father, help us then to avoid the extremes and to land in that sweet spot of balance and godly moderation that puts us in a place in which our thoughts are ever of thee and things above where Christ is seated at thy right hand. And yet the posture of our lives on earth is proactive and directive towards others that name the name of Christ, that we might help them and encourage them and strengthen them as a part of the family of God. Thank you for the practical matters of which we've discussed in this hour. We ask your blessing upon your people. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.